it's so shocking the disconnect between consumers and funeral professionals so often that they know what they don't want or they think they know what they don't want and they don't realize that they're all working with funeral directors behind that website on the other end of that phone call you know on the other side of the table all the time but i think the distinction that you were highlighting so well is that if a consumer just wants cremation right that's what direct cremation supports but they're simply delaying the permanent placement decisions and maybe that makes 100% sense in the moment, but it may actually cause some challenges down the road. And that's something we tried to test with the research. Welcome to the Direct Cremation Podcast with your hosts, Tyler Yamasaki and Will DeMichaelis. Hi, thank you for joining us on the Direct Cremation Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Yamasaki, CEO of Parting Pro. And as always, I'm here with my co-host, Will DeMichaelis, former manager of Omega Society, a cremation brand that served over 4,500 families per year. Um, today, we have our first returning guest, Barbara Chemis, executive director of the Cremation Association of North America. Today, we have a sneak preview of Kena's latest cremation memorialization research, Attitudes Towards Cremated Remains and house- Households. We'll also go through interesting data regarding COVID, death rates, and baby boomers. By the end of this, you'll either have a new understanding of the cremation family, or you'll have statistical proof to validate your feelings about them. So let's welcome Barbara. Thanks for having me back. Welcome back. Always good to have you. I'm your biggest fan, too. I love this podcast. I talk to a lot of people about it. Send the links. (laughs) Amazing. Great. Thank you. Thank you. You're our favorite guest. We've had you on once. (laughs) So I want to start just thank you for being here and talking through some of the results with us. I think data is always a great first step, but it's really only powerful if we're able to use it and put it into action. Otherwise, it's just numbers. I think what might be helpful is if we can pick a statistic or two and then talk about how that might be impactful for the funeral director and how they may be able to change how they think or how they do their arrangements or just their businesses in general. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. So where do you want to start, Barbara? We can can start with any of the statistics. How about I describe the research a little bit and, you know, what we were trying to do and how we went about doing it. So Kena is, you know, best known for two things. We're We're known for research, our annual statistics reports which I hope all your listeners are accessing. Um, it's available to Kena members and our infographics on the website, and it's useful for business planning and benchmarking. But it doesn't tell a story about why people are choosing cremation or what their experience is, or most importantly, what do they think about, what are they doing with the ashes, the cremated remains after the fact? And so um, back before, even before I joined Kena, we did a what we call the disposition survey. I think this was 2006. And it's where the, the one-third rule came from. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But this research was of Kena members and basically documented their sales trends for a specified period of time. And guess what? One-third went home in the temporary container. One-third went directly to cemeteries. And one-third went home temporarily in a nice container and was going to be placed in a cemetery or displayed at home or whatever. And so that's roughly the one-third rule that people still quote back to me, which I love because it was true then, but um, everybody, you know, everybody within Cana and, and different suppliers and, and practitioners and board members, we've all said, we, we need to update this research. 
But rather than document sales data, which in 2006, that wasn't so easy to get or aggregate or whatever. Now everybody, hopefully, everybody knows their numbers because of the software they use and they can analyze their sales trends and and their suppliers can help them benchmark that against other people. Hopefully they're utilizing that strength. So we decided to go to consumers and say, what are you doing with these cremated remains? Uh, the cremation rate has increased so much. And so we had two goals with this research. One was to quantify the number of cremated remains. And then we use the term ashes because you have to speak a different language to consumers because they don't know <laughs> cremated remains. So forgive me, professionals out there, if I offend you by saying ashes <laughs> every once in a while, because that's what the research term used. But anyway, we want to quantify how many were in households. We looked at the U.S. and Canada, and we also looked at human and pet remains. It was a pretty complex online survey. We worked with Harris Insight and Analytics, which published the Harris Poll. And then the uh, the second objective was to quantify attitudes toward those ashes in their household and future plans for permanent placement. Okay. So that's, that's the gist of it. And uh, we got some interesting results, which I hope we can talk about. Yeah, of course always open. I, you know, you know me, like I said, on the last time we talked, I really love data. Yeah. I feel like it gives you a, it gives you a truth that you can't really fight against sometimes. Yeah. You have to reverse engineer the truth behind the behavior because what it's giving you is behavior data, you know, from, from the consumers. Well, let's talk about it from that angle because there were certain, as always, as is my nature, we, pulled together a group of stakeholders to design the questions. So it was a mix, it was sponsors of the research. This is expensive research to do. So shout out to the sponsors. <laughs> I should thank them right up front. Um, and those sponsors included um, Batesville, Terry Bear, SCI, Foresight Companies, and Mackenzie Earnvault. And I'm going to check my list because I feel yeah, like I don't forget somebody. Don't so forget anybody. <laughs> I will fill that in. So thank you. Thank you all. But what, they not only contributed money to pay for the research, but they contributed their expertise and, and perspectives. So you'd think the first objective, quantifying the number of cremated remains, would be easy to do, right? Like we just ask people, do you have ashes in your household? And then we know how many. And we what we learned is that 26% of respondents said, I have, I have human ashes in my house. I'm going to focus on humans unless you ask me specific pet questions. So if whatever I'm saying is about humans unless otherwise specified. So you'd think that'd be easy. 26% said, yep, I have human remains, human ashes in my household. Except what does every funeral practitioner know when, when people take ashes home and buy keepsakes they don't just divide them once they divide them what a dozen times yeah, right yeah, a dozen yeah. pieces of jewelry or keepsakes mm -hmm. so we asked some follow-up questions like what container are those ashes in and trying to get at how many people this represents and it wasn't uncommon to have a respondent say uh well we have a large urn we have i have a you know two or three pieces of jewelry. I mean, they have multiple family members worth of cremated remains, right? So rather than try to, you know, figure out how many pieces of jewelry equal a person, um, we decided to, to err on the side of being conservative. And so the number that we published, which I 
don't have in front of me, but I think it was 21.6 million, um, is not 26% of U.S. households. If like you do the simple math, it's it's not equivalent, but that 21.6 million equals the number of people who had the large full-size urns and more likely to have the full set. Because our intention, our agenda subtext was we want to know what the opportunity is for cemeteries, right? We want to know how many of these people are likely to relocate those ashes from their home to a cemetery or another place. And so that 21.6 million is definitely on the low end because it's not counting jewelry or keepsakes. So there may, but there may be more of an opportunity, but that's a baseline that we chose. Got you. So I guess just to recap, just to make sure I understand that 21.6 million is households that have a large urn that contains the vast majority of a set of cremated remains or ashes. Right. Got it. Right. Okay. Okay. Exactly. And there could be, you know, some smaller percentage of that same person's cremated remains in jewelry among other family members or small keepsakes elsewhere, but that's not part of that, that number. Right. And, you know, what we quickly realized when trying to, to do this is this was a, this was an online survey. It was like 25 questions, if I remember correctly. So we couldn't get the story behind it. So uh, it's almost every answer to one of the questions raised, you know, a dozen more questions. Well, what about this situation or that or this, you know, and it was like, you know, never wished more for focus groups to to hear the story behind each of those, each of those pieces of jewelry, keepsake, urn, what have you. Um, It really, you know, because there was a story behind why they had seven sets or just one or three or you know why why they divided and why what that meant to them and they might have had different plans for each of the pieces so the fact that we had a statistically significant set of respondents to get you know to say these are national trends and even regional trends is great but it only goes so far right i want it to go further but it only goes so far that's a bunch of just cremated remains just sitting on shelves or sitting in the closet. I know a lot of them don't get displayed anymore yeah. as maybe they once did. That's like what, like one in the one in 11 people, 20, 20 million, like one in 11, something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you had seven, that doesn't, that doesn't give you seven, right? That that's only still one, one household. Correct. Yeah. We estimated 20, 21.6 million households, which can be multiple generations of a family. It's, you know, I guess think rooftop, not right. in various, various number of people under that rooftop. Yeah, that doesn't equal the number of people because they're just saying a binary yes, no, we have ashes in our household. And right. then there was other questions about how many they had. And, you know, we asked follow-up questions about like, well, who, who do these people represent as far as relationships? And one of the most interesting responses was 51% of respondents said that they were veterans, that these people were veterans. That really surprised me and surprised others. It makes sense in that, you know, what's one of the motivations for choosing cremation is to keep that person close to you. Okay, so that part makes sense. Um, but veterans have access to the most memorialization benefits of, of anyone, right? Yeah, like there's yeah. cemeteries. I, I mean, there's, well, you could tell me there's there's little to no cost to memorialize 
uh, cremated remains in national cemeteries, et cetera. Yeah. And maybe they don't know about the benefits, but I think more likely that possession, that desire to keep them close for a period of time trumps accessing these benefits, so they'll do that later. Oh, well, in your time seeing all these families, how many would you say were planning to just keep them at home, didn't say they had plans else, you know, to scatter or to, to enter somewhere? A lot. I think a lot of families, this made me think a lot about a decision maker's behavior and behavioral trends and acceptability in terms of like end of life behavior and keeping cremated remains. A lot of people's general behavior is if they didn't have something set up and guidelines, they were more inclined, not necessarily a majority of the time, but just more inclined to want to push the major placement decisions down the road. And we're far more inclined to think about the necessary critical path to accomplishing the necessary services, i.e., you know, there is a body that needs to have a disposition chosen, paperwork done, paid for, Mm -hmm. and then at least a temporary place of rest, usually at home, which is kind of what we're revealing. And from there, their decision-making process or thought process can go any number of different directions and affects the behavior from there. I I mean, the majority of cremated remains that we had were returned to families for disposition at a cemetery or residence. And I would say, I don't have the details offhand, but I mean, you know, we, we filed a lot of permits for residents. We, we, filed, we filed a lot of permits for residents. And sometimes if a family was said that, oh, we have a desire to be scattered at sea, we would probe and say, where do you think that would happen? And say, we can file a permit for scattering off the coast of Orange County. And if you take the cremated remains home, you have the flexibility to scatter. And if you never do it, no one's the wiser, but you have the flexibility. Yeah. You have the benefit of being in California where that's the only, we're one of very few states, I won't say the only state, but the only state that I can come up with right now that actually requires you to record disposition at the time of filing the death certificate. And of course, it is a moment in time. You just described the dynamic perfectly. Yeah. You know, take it home and then you can decide. And I mean, clearly, a lot of people have chosen to do that. And a lot of people haven't decided since the remains are still in their household. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's it's so interesting. I want to correct my memory because <laughs> I said the wrong thing. The 1.6 million is actually the number of Canadian households with ashes. And in the U.S., it's 20.4. So it was close, but I was off okay. a little bit. And the interesting thing to compare that is to for your Canadian listeners, uh, Canada continues just to be better at memorialization with cremation than the U.S. because they only have 19% of households with ashes in them. So it's a a significant difference between the U.S. and Canada. I mean, do you think that has to do with America being a little bit more or being a little bit younger and immature with their cremation families than other parts of the world? I blame the funeral rule and no offense to the name of this podcast, but uh, the concept of direct cremation is an American phenomenon. It doesn't, we export it, unfortunately, but it doesn't, it's not a concept anywhere else. It's an American born thing. 
So, and probably the fact that we are immature. I don't know, but yeah. Well, I guess that kind of goes onto my thing is, you know, there was such a pushback to embracing cremation for so long. I think that it almost drove it to the point where it got so simple and broken down into just a direct cremation as a disposition that we're now starting to come out of it. I think even will, you know, we've talked about it earlier in other episodes where the point of Omega society was to provide this one service as affordably without, you know, sacrificing service and care. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. after the fact, it was kind of like, we, we did our part and we're, our job is kind of done. I think that, does provide now that I I think we've learned that there is probably an opportunity to really provide more additional services on top of just the, just the disposition of a direct cremation. It's definitely true. And I think that where we came from as a business was knowing what we do really well in terms of like our service offering and then going above and beyond with families like who need like particular like turnaround times that are like really crucial. Like we were really good about that. And we got a lot of kudos for making like filing a death certificate in, in half a day, you know, like getting stuff like same day cremation, stuff like that. We, so those, those efficiencies really helped us in those moments for those families where it was, if that was important for them. But in terms of memorialization after, what we really pushed was pushing that on to families to discuss together and saying that there isn't a limit to the personalization of this part of this process. We've helped you with the cremation aspect, which is a necessity. And now you have cremated remains, which is a... like. They're more flexible to work with. They're more transportable. So you can, if you want a memorial Mm -hmm. service in a different state, you can transport cremated remains rather than a full body. So there's flexibility there. Flexibility with veteran services. You don't have to have those honors at a veteran cemetery. You can have an honor guard come to a backyard memorial service and play taps and present a flag and do all of that at a private residence. So those things we offered. However, what I kind of see in this data is that there's an opportunity to help families at that point in time because they're not always doing it themselves. They know that it's available. They've been told that it's available, but their behavior and actual action is not reflecting that all of the time. That's really interesting because I, I would that validates. I mean, your or maybe Kana research validates the experience you just shared. Well, because in focus group research we did in 2019, we learned the hard way, even in designing the research itself, that it's the exception to the rule and not the rule that people who choose cremation do nothing afterwards. So we were trying to populate focus groups with direct cremation people. And we told the focus group company, we find people who chose cremation and then didn't memorialize at all. And what we meant was didn't memorialize with the funeral home or the cremation provider's assistance. Mm -hmm. They did it themselves. Well, the focus group 
you know, company, they arrange, they populate the groups for us to talk to. They couldn't find anyone who'd done nothing. Everybody had done something. The distinction was between had they done it themselves mm-hmm. or via their church or, or yep. social group, family, yep. or done it with assistance of the funeral director. And then when we held the focus groups, I remember sitting behind the glass having to double, triple check the list. I'm like, is this a direct cremation group or not? They, they sounded the same. There was no difference in their satisfaction levels, in their mm-hmm. experience, you know, experiences and how they were describing their experiences of cremation. The themes transcended the funeral director's assistance or the funeral mm-hmm. director's role. In fact, it was hard to hear, but nine times out of 10, the consumers didn't mention a funeral director at all. One woman yeah. who in Phoenix arranged a witnessed cremation at a Cana member who shall remain. They did a great job, but I still don't have permission to say their name, but they did a great job. High satisfaction. This woman swore up and down. She, she never worked with a funeral director because she worked with a woman and, you know, funeral directors can't be women. Right. And she was wearing a polo shirt and khakis, not a suit. Well, she wasn't a funeral director then witnessed cremation. I mean, of course this, she was working with a funeral director. But she got exactly what she wanted, worked with this nice woman, no funeral director involved. And that's, uh, it was just, it's so shocking, the disconnect between consumers and funeral professionals so often that they don't want, they know what they don't want, or they think they know what they don't want. And they don't realize that they're all working with funeral directors behind that website, on the other end of that phone call, you know, on the other side of the table all the time. But I think the distinction that you were highlighting so well is that when, and if a consumer just wants cremation, right, that's what direct cremation supports, Mm -hmm. but they're simply delaying the permanent placement decisions. And and maybe that, that makes a hundred percent sense in the moment, but it may actually cause some challenges down the road. And that's something we tried to test with the research. We, one of the myths um, I hear a lot uh, I've heard it recently, as a matter of fact, from funeral directors is people choose cremation for family members they don't really care about or didn't really like or didn't really love. We burn our trash, not our not our loved ones is the extreme version of that. But I think what most funeral professionals really mean is they they understand the value of of um, funeral services or memorial services or celebrations of life to help a family grieve. They absolutely understand the value of doing something mm-hmm. and direct disposition of any kind can, um, they, they question whether that'll help, help the family's grief, but it's expressed in different ways. And this research showed that, you know, over 70% of the respondents were involved along with their loved one with the decision to cremate. Mm-hmm. They were not, or their friend or their, you know, whoever they were helping to plan, they were absolutely involved in that decision. And so as we analyzed the research, we, we looked at it in different ways and attitudes toward, you know, how, how do people feel about these ashes in their home was so interesting. Overwhelmingly, the options were um, too positive, too kind of more um, neutral and to what I would call negative options. So the positive options were joyful reminder and comforting presence, 
And I've told the story a million times about my my dad in an urn sitting on the table next to my mom, my mom's chair. And I was visiting her recently and I'm like, she's got stuff piled on his urn. She's got mail piled on top. I don't know how I feel about that. Whatever. It's, you know, it works for her. So, um, and then the two neutral options were practical solution or uh, temporary option, temporary solution. Mm -hmm. And then the two negative were, um, were, I'm sorry, I'm not looking at it directly, were something like guilty. I feel guilty about this. I feel sad about this. 70% said joyful reminder, comforting presence. And the rest of the respondents were between the neutral and the negative. So they don't feel bad about choosing cremation. They were involved in the decision-making. Even those who inherited the act, because we did, we we also asked them and divided the responses by, did you, were you involved in the decision to cremate or did you inherit this urn? Negligible difference between their attitudes if they inherited the urn or versus, you know, that like people are satisfied with their decision to cremate. They wanted yeah. this. They do not regret it. They're happy with these ashes in the household, at least for now. And yeah. So anyway, go ahead. <laughs> this is my personal opinion on that. I would guess that generally the respondents would skew a little bit older to, to answering that question. And I think that life experience and the life experience of going through that death contributes to it being a positive reminder, a positive and welcomed reminder. I think those younger, maybe more fearful of the concept of death and mortality may feel differently about that. But someone who's older, who's gone through more life and is reflecting on it, has that answer more often than not, I would think, or has a higher propensity to give that answer. I think you just gave me a homework assignment because <laughs> we can look at the research by generations. We had enough respondents in five generations to, to look through that, that lens. And we didn't look at that question about their you know, how they view the ashes in their household. We looked at the generational differences I mean, the generational responses a little bit differently, and that's coming out in the next issue of, of The Cremationist, so stay tuned for that. Um, but it, what was high-level interesting about generations is overall, younger generations were more positive about services than older generations, which totally tracks, right? Mm -hmm. Totally tracks. My father didn't want us to have a funeral. He didn't want us to be sad. He didn't want yeah. us to go through all of that. And that's the only thing my mom and I needed. So we had a funeral. Sorry, dad, but we did. And so, um, but it totally tracks, right? That humble, I don't want to have to put you through this attitude. Whereas younger people who have bigger circles of friends and more living family members, they want to gather too, right? So they're they're open to that. There were other, you know, there were other generational attitudes toward toward things that I, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. I'm excited about that, but not really. Um, but now I want to look at it. Now that's my homework. Yes, yeah, let me know. Let generational me know. attitudes toward the ashes in their household because I bet it's more neutral. The negative responses were so minimal, and it, okay. it's so interesting. <laughs> Because like when you think about it, cemeteries that do scatter days and do or earn returns or, or whatever they're calling them, they're super successful. The Cana members who've done these often like 
do them by appointment because otherwise they get overwhelmed by people who just show up on the given day and it's too many people for them to scatter and do it in a methodical way. And so, and those appointments fill up and then they, you know, maybe expand it, maybe they don't. But so often the marketing around that is guilt, like, you know, get so-and-so out of the closet or, or, um, you know, whatever that's tongue in cheek and often humorous, but it's more like you have this burden or you feel a certain negative way and they get a great response to that kind of marketing. Imagine if they marketed positively, right? Like, that's we know you enjoy, right? right? I mean, that's that. I guess that's homework for all the marketers out there. Try it. Try the messaging. We had a specific disposition, like an unwitnessed scattering, and mm-hmm. we got a lot of people doing that. But that was always like, well, I know that my like my brother or my mom wanted to be scattered at sea. I don't have the money or enough family to make it worthwhile to charter a yacht. And I would say, well, we can scatter them for $50 and you'll get a certificate after it's done. They get a rose thrown in the water with their remains and it's done respectfully. And I make the certificates myself with the date of scattering. So you have a memento. Um, That's incredible. People really like like that. It was a lot of work for us, but I mean, they really liked it. (laughs) We We did it for free for decades. We did it absolutely free. For, for decades before charging for it, like in the last few years. But um, I think that's great. And I think that's a replicable to whatever extent people want to replicate that. But what that points to is you knew and saw this trend and offered a solution that a permanent placement is not going home fundamentally, mm-hmm. even though a large portion of consumers believe they're going to live in their relative's household or they're going to be placed in their relative's household. They'll be dead in an urn, to be clear. But they're going to be pa- in, you know, passed down through the years. And you know, even their children understand that that's not really going to happen. So they default to scattering. But we get so many calls at Cana about how to scatter and what am I going to see when I open and what, what does oh, yeah. it feel like? And there's, you know, people are squeamish about it. They want to do what their parent or husband or whatever asked them to do. They want to follow through the wishes, but they don't want to do it themselves. They don't want to touch, touch those ashes. They don't know what it's going to be like. It's, you know, they get the box in the mail or, or pick it up from the provider and it's way heavier than they thought Yeah, yeah. because if you asked anybody to guess yeah. how many remains are in an urn, they would so underguess, right? They yeah. would not be able to estimate. So there's a lot of surprises and, and logistics, not logistics, not even the logistics of where, but just like, how do I open this box? I, you know, I need a screwdriver and here I am ready to scatter and I didn't bring a screwdriver. You yeah. Know? I always say that people are afraid of remains because people would say, well, I have to go to the cemetery. To do, like I need the permit. And I would say, oh yes, that have too, you, that too. Have you checked the cremated remains? Like we we banned an envelope with copies of the permit to all the containers that we released to families. Like, oh no, I haven't looked at it. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared of that. It's like yeah. that's that's where your answer is. Like you're that's where it is. 
yeah. <laughs> Open the box and yeah. not even open the the box no. within the box, just no. the shipping box. Exactly, mm-hmm. had a family experience of exactly that. Where's the paperwork? I never got the paperwork. Yeah, and you never opened the USPS cremated remains box either, because yep. you didn't know what you were going to see in there. Yeah. So I think you know, kind of along those lines, one of the last little tidbits I'll share with you because we could talk about this for hours, but your listeners won't want to listen to this for hours probably. Um, is we we did ask people as a kind of forward looking, okay, what kind of permanent place, if, if you were going to relocate the remains in your home, where where would you put them? And, and then we asked a, a similar question, thinking for yourself, if you choose cremation, where do you want to be permanently placed? And so I'll focus on that answer, which is fascinating, that 44% said scattering. So they're, they're not going to scatter themselves, obviously. They're putting that on somebody else. And of course, there was n- no opportunity to follow up. So we don't know if they had a plan. A full 20% said cemetery, right? Either above ground, mm-hmm. columbarian type structure or yeah. buried in a cemetery. They, they knew what that was. And so 20% are good to go. I mean, maybe they haven't purchased it, but they, sure. they have spe- specified plans. And the rest... Almost all of the rest were, I don't know, no plans, haven't talked about it yet, right? Honest answers, that's fine. But a shocking 5% said, leave it at the funeral home. <laughs> and, right? And it was fascinating insight into consumers' perspectives about why they don't pick up those urns, why unclaimed remains are so common, because mm-hmm. why not? Leave them at the funeral home, that's permanent placement. That's safe. This is what they thought for themselves. For themselves. Well, that was their plan for themselves. Just leave it at the funeral home. In the upcoming generations, I think there is less of a, a need for stuff, right? Yeah. And I don't want to mm-hmm. categorize human remains as stuff, but, you know, the minimalist of owning physical goods has decreased quite a bit, especially with these younger generations. Like, they don't actually have things, right? Mm-hmm. So I can imagine... A world where, you know, in 20, 30 years, when someone dies, like actually taking home something would be almost weird. Like now I'm now I'm almost burdened with holding something, something and having physical. something physical, right? Mm-hmm. When, you know, everything else is, can be done virtually. And I mean, we talk about almost like living in new worlds with this new metaverse where we're, there's no physical part of it, right? And, you know, online memorials can become more of an important thing in in people's lives NFT, i just nft headstones tyler nft headstones yeah, nft headstones you know? <laughs> um, oh that's yeah. the future okay you yeah. know memorialize on the blockchain but not you know, the blockchain will you right? never I, be I, forgotten so i actually think that five percent may you know i and i think they say leave it at the funeral home only because they don't know where else to leave it yeah or it's painful yeah i actually think that grows yeah um yeah i think all of these questions and more right are sparked by this research and i think that's that's the sign of good research i also think this is a snapshot in time as we think demographically if and i hope we will update this research in some format you know before another 17 years pass. I would like to do this on a more regular schedule so we can kind of benchmark generational attitudes because if we do it in another, 
you know, say 10 years, well, that's near the peak of, of anticipated baby boomer death. I bet attitudes toward permanent placement will change when it's more imminent, when it's, you know, they're not, they're not placing their parents or their spouses. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, this is real. My kids already, I have successive remains in my home and I'm passing them plus me onto my family. Uh Oh, it's, it's a little bit more, maybe there's more urgency, maybe not. But right now, what I hope, I mean, we've been talking primarily to Kena members about this research, but now this wider audience Start asking people, plant the seeds, so to speak, of, you know, do what you were saying. Well, plant, um, ask about, well, what are your plans and how, mm-hmm. how can we help you? You know, we mm-hmm. can give you information about scattering. We can help you select a container that you can open with confidence and scatter from that, whether that's a tube or just something you don't need a tool for, right? Um, yeah, the, the container thing was fascinating because something like, I want to say this right. Sixty percent of the respondents said they were they were the urns in their home were not temporary containers. They were we gave them all these prompts, urns of this, you know, marble, mm-hmm. stone, cloisonne, like we listed all these different yeah. materials to be sure that they weren't choosing the temporary container. Well, you know, conservative est- estimates are are that more than sixty percent of people are going home with temporary containers. So where are they getting these urns, likely not from the cremation provider. Um, maybe they are, you know, maybe maybe they're getting them online from themselves. Boy, do I wish we'd asked that question with confidence. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. regrets now. That's another reason to update the research. But that 60%, maybe that's a benchmark, right? That 60% of your cremation families are going home with something that's not a temporary container. So they can display it and, yeah. I have it up. You have in the U.S. 68% uh, of people in the U.S. have them in some sort of constructed container, stone, wood, metal, ceramic paper, mm-hmm. 62% in Canada. And then even further, 89% are satisfied with the container in America oh, yeah. and 87 are satisfied with the container they have in Canada, which is high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's Very super high. high. Yeah. The way we constructed the question around plans to relocate wasn't as helpful as I'd hoped it would be because mm-hmm. We, what we didn't take into account is that, you know, my, the container might be like grandma's cookie jar or some yeah. piece of art or something like that, right? But that if if their plan to relocate is to a cemetery, that might not fit in the niche or right. be suitable for bear. They they right. they may be ignorant of what the cemetery requires them to change. The, so you need I'd to ask a, it differently. A good funeral director should know, like before before selling an urn to a family, they should be looking at the permit. Because you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be selling a companion urn to some place where they're going to be put in like a like a brush bronze yeah. niche that's going to be really small. Um, mm-hmm. What I think that the, a real takeaway though is that like there's an opportunity for people or for funeral directors to understand that their clients want merchandise containers of some sort, yeah. and however you interpret that, whether that's like sales techniques to increase your own sales. Or understanding that, like, I know for us, like, we had no sales quotas and we had no commissions. I, and that perpetuated a culture of honest salesmanship, which is if you have someone in our showroom looking at our urns that are $245, $270 out the door with tax, and they don't love anything, but you can tell that they're there like, oh, I'm about to get these cremated remains. I don't want to take them home in a temporary urn. And I feel like I need to make that decision right now. And 
they don't love anything that we have, I'd say don't buy anything right now. If you don't love anything and you're going to, I don't, I don't want your $250. I want you to be happy with what you put your mom's cremated remains in. And if that, you know, here's three websites for you to buy stuff online, including Amazon to find that butterfly urn that, you know, would speak to her or that horse urn, or she loved elephants, whatever it is, you know, find that so that it can be that peaceful, pleasant reminder in your house. And that as a funeral director in a funeral home, they were like, oh, thanks so much. Because nothing, nothing gives you more credibility than turning down a sale. That's so true. <laughs> I will say, um, at least from the data that we see through Parting Pro, about 33% do buy something immediately in the arrangement process. Yeah. You know, which is kind of opposite what you said. There's like 60 to 70% are putting them in something other than the temporary container. So there is some difference in the middle where they will find that container elsewhere after the arrangement. Mm-hmm. Is that data from your online arranger? Yeah. Yeah. See, and, and that, and from our experience, they might not choose when they're going through the like arrangement process, especially if they're imminent, they'll, yeah. they'll say, Hey, I want to make sure that I have cremation plans. I want to get paperwork started and get an idea of payment. And then when I call my sister, when I call my brother, and they, they come when dad dies, we'll go down to the funeral home and make that decision together. Yeah. So parting, parting pro gives you the option to say, you know, like this is, this is a priority now. And this, this is, we're deprioritizing this and handling it in a different way. I hope a conversation like this, I hope this research sparks conversations like this. And I hope this kind of conversation happens in, in, you know, businesses across the country, because some of it is like, how many funeral directors have I spoken to? Have we, have you all met who are like, I'm not a salesperson. I'm not in the business to sell anything. I, I'm, I provide solutions. Right. And, and I respect that, but you know what? Sometimes merchandise is a solution. And mm-hmm. so if you believe in that merchandise, you believe in that solution, you know, you hear someone's going to scatter and you know what you send your, your, temporary container or standard container that you return home is not with them. It's not easy to open or scatter. Talk to them about it. You know, it's, I don't know. It's um, there's no easy solution. I don't mean to make it sound like it's simple or anything, but I hope these conversations happen because there is this persistent disconnect on so many levels between consumers and funeral professionals. And this is one of them. This is one of the things that the concept of permanent placement differs so dramatically. And a lot of, you know, a lot of this is on cemeterians, not on funeral directors too, but cemeterians don't have direct access to cremation families. The funeral director bridges that, if mm-hmm. anything, right? So it's a, it's a problem we caused with, with direct cremation phenomenon, I think, by, you know, it's a, it's a problem that can, or well, consumers caused maybe by making choices and not realizing that they would have to make these, they were just delaying decisions that they still have to make. Um, but hey, it's never a dull moment, right? We have our work cut out for ourselves. We can, we can tackle this. We can come yeah. up with solutions. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Barbara and Will. We are primarily in this direct cremation phase, I think, in America. Yeah. You know, we see the Omega Societies of the Worlds, the, you know, Crowns, the all these doing 5,000 plus cremations a year. So mm-hmm. how do you think we can make initial steps 
to, I don't want to say get out of it, but expand upon that. So, you know, we're not a culture of just get the cremation. We're not commoditizing the cremation to just the cremation society. Everything else is handled outside of that. What do you think funeral directors can do to kind of start to bridge that gap of what is completely done throughout the whole time of the death and just the commoditized part of the direct cremation? I think funeral professionals can start by asking the question and planting the seed around permanent placement. Now, if that's through an online arrangement, you know, pro- but that's part of the online arrangement experience is what do you intend to do with the cremated remains? and Or do you want to see um, urns that, that are scatter friendly? for example, or do you, you know, there's different ways to, to phrase it and construct it, knowing that it's not always going to be a person talking to a person. Sometimes it's working your way through a, a website, um, forms and, and things like that. I, but I think building that in, I've created a presentation based on this research that is titled, Do Cremated Remains Deserve to Rest in Peace? And when I ask this question, I get really interesting responses. Cemeterians are, hell yes. They deserve to rest in peace in my cemetery. By right. you know, like yeah. <laughs> I, that's what they're there for. Of course, they they support memorialization. Funeral directors, a lot of them shrug and say, "Well, if the family thinks so, sure." Right. You know, but it's it's not a core part of what they do or or how they serve families individually. I'm saying the individuals who shrug, they don't they don't view it as part of their service to families necessarily. I think that could benefit from changing or questioning. And I think there's, um, I think consumer preferences will swing just as consumer preferences have swung toward direct cremation. Well, the race to the bottom, I've said this before, I think on this podcast, the race to the bottom is over. We know exactly how cheap a cremation can be. Mm-hmm. And we know that families are, you know, some families are going to not want to do it themselves. And so they're going to find a provider who can help them. Whether that's the cremation provider is is an open question or whether it's a doula or an event planner or, you know, somebody else. I mean, I guess that's our job, our, our loss if we lose that business as a profession. Right. So I think that, you know, consumer preferences always swing and if we can influence that great through education and opportunities. Okay. But yeah, I think we all have our part. Yeah. yeah. A business can, can solve that. A number of different ways. And I think Tyler, you, you, you and I, and I think we even maybe with Barbara, we've talked about this and you even mentioned it just now, Barbara, like incorporating on your team an event planner that can follow up with families and is dedicated to serving those families who don't know what to do and want the help and mm-hmm. filling that gap. You could take a more hands-off approach by like o- offering like a page on your website like not sure what to do with cremated remains, like see below to think outside the box and see if anything speaks to you. And in both cases, you're helping families find solutions themselves and validating memorialization that speaks to them. And that's, I think, the most important thing to do as a funeral director is to give people permission, is not to force people to take the solutions you offer them, but um, allow people to think about it and ask themselves questions uh, about what mattered to that individual. And based yeah. on those answers, you actually come up with a 
better plan that often doesn't include a funeral home. Like I, I like seeing families that like take cremated remains home and they say, oh, we went to like it was our immediate family, maybe five of us. And we went to Olive Garden which is his favorite restaurant. And <laughs> yep. like we got endless salad and breadsticks and talked about how much like our dad loved the endless and salad and breadsticks and shared stories about that. And that, and that is going through grief and impactful for that family, you know, it's perfectly like, valid. Yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. And, and it's just the five of them. They don't need to invite everyone from all over the country to participate. It's just that works for them. Well, and one of the things Kana teaches is to do exactly that because one of the disconnects within the profession that is frustrating, that is frustrating for everybody around cremation is that, you know, somehow we've come to think or believe um, that cremation families grieve differently or need different things or that kind of thing. So over the, I'm just going to, I'm just going to blatantly promote our newest educational offering here because I think it's a solution. I really do. That's why we created it, but we created, um, a credential called the Certified Cremation Specialist. And not too long ago, within my time, in the, in the last 10 years of the profession, I've seen presenters stand on stage and say, "Are you who in this room is a cremation specialist? And nobody raises their hand. And then they say, yes, you are. You all are. Because just assert it. Say, I'm a cremation specialist when you answer the phone. And and that's fine. I mean, I, I mean that's, that's, I guess, fine. But we decided... No, we're Kena. We're going to come up with a series of classes that cover topics from FTC compliance to phone shoppers to the cremation choice, consumer motivations to, you know, whole ethics, a whole slew of online education classes. I think it's 11 hours of continuing education if you do all of them in one go. And that is cremation first, that comes at it from the perspective of, I'm, I'm not going to believe these biases anymore. I'm not going to believe that cremation families are somehow radically different. And we've had about 50 people go through this, these cohorts over the past year. And we hear people with like 20 years of funeral service experience saying, oh, wow, you know, now I remember why I did this in the first place. <laughs> like I can connect. I'm reminded how to connect to families. I'm reminded, like, I, I want to be empathetic. I want to hear their stories. I want to not just assume cremations about price. And we heard one student who went, I mean, one woman who went through it and she was within a year of graduating. And she, she said to us, I was thinking about leaving funeral service because what I learned in school was about funerals and burial and embalming. And then I got this job at this cremation society and one had nothing to do with the other, but the Cana course taught me that it, it actually does. These, these cremation families, on the other side of the website and on the other end of the phone need my expertise and services just as much as anyone else. So yeah, we're giving low cost CE. It starts at $15 an hour. Like it's, it's cheap CE. It's cheap, you know, as cheap as like web, you know, some of the web-based ones that are out there, but this is good content and I'm biased, but I'll stand by it. It's good content. And I love hearing those testimonials from people who take the classes and feel like, oh, yeah, I'm going to overcome these things I was taught. I'm going to reconnect with my calling, the families I'm serving through training. I think I think that's what it is. Not everybody, you know, we've talked about this before, too. Well, like you never went to a national convention or even a state convention, right, to get your CE. You got your CE the way you did, probably online or through suppliers. And that's perfectly valid. 
most funeral directors are in that position. Their owners and managers won't send them to a Cana event. They're afraid they're poached and hired by somebody else or or whatever. You know, they, they reserve those experiences for themselves sometimes. Who knows? So that's another reason we laid this out because it's online, it's affordable, it's accessible to hopefully a large number of people who can benefit from hearing a different, a cremation first perspective and reconnect um, and bridge those those disconnects between yeah. families and professionals. So yeah, thanks for yeah. letting me give the ad. Uh, <laughs> so. no, no. Well, I think it's a really important thing that you're pushing. Well, I always said that when you called Omega Society, for example, it didn't feel like you were calling a cremation society. Yeah. And I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Right. But right. you can call Omega Society and you could call the full service guy down the street and you would get the same phone experience, right? You would still feel that. And I think that's a big reason why when Will was at Omega Society, it ran that way. It ran like you were getting the full value of a full service funeral home, but mm-hmm. at an affordable price, right? And I think that mm-hmm. is why there was, you know, I don't know how many reviews there were, 900 five star reviews or something. It's <laughs> like, a big part, but the, the, la- the last part I would say is the most important. And that's like when you get someone at Omega on the phone and you know that they've talked to another funeral home, you know how those conversations can go. Our perspective is, oh, if you want to go with so-and-so funeral home, by all means, when you go to your arrangement, you should ask these questions. You should ask for this information just to make sure that you feel comfortable with what you're you're getting and it's not to like get like a gotcha moment for that for them it's really just like oh no like if you're any funeral director these are what you would tell people to bring to their arrangements and to ask like due diligent questions and they're like oh wow like thanks i i would have just done what they had told me and it's like no well this way like you get some clarity on the services and you feel better about the choice that you made and you can validate your choice to the other family members that are going to question the choice that you made. And I know what that feels like. So I think that like these questions will equip you to answer those, whether you use this or not and happily tell that family that expecting that they never call you back. Mm. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> good phone etiquette <laughs> to go a really long way. It's good human well, etiquette. It's good human etiquette. It's empathy. It's good communication skills. It's those soft skills that no matter how many people complain about mortuary science, you don't teach soft skills in an academic program. I mean, you you can actually. You can actually form good funeral directors in schools. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't end there. It has to be on the job training and cultivate and rewarding empathy and soft skills. And we actually have designed classes that can help support that and teach tips and best practices to, to, you know, enhance your, I wish there were tricks. Sorry, there aren't. I'm not, I'm over-promising, but, um, but to practice those soft skills and, and it helps avert burnout too, because when you, when you can't be empathetic anymore, when you can't connect with people, regardless of your position, but definitely as a funeral director, it's over. Yeah. It's done. done. You're, you're not giving and you're not getting anything out of the experience. So, Yeah. Well said. That's great. I love talking with you both. This is <laughs> this is fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. I know it's getting long, but I, I really want to talk about COVID. 
mm-hmm. and some of the effects. I know you have done quite a bit of research around COVID oh, and the yeah. funeral service. And I thought maybe we can talk about a few of the highlights. Um, well, we still have some time here. Definitely. One of the ones was that, that carry forward one or pull forward one. Yeah. yeah. You I'm obsessed um, with this. As yeah. I'm obsessed I sure with this too. Um, I think when I was interviewed by you earlier in the year, we just, our annual statistics report had come out and we didn't know. And I know we still don't know. <laughs> we are crystal ball still broken, but, but we know a little bit more. And the pull forward effect is, is, well, you have to look backward to look forward. So looking backward, 2021 and 2020 were equally as deadly, largely due to COVID, but there were other increased causes of death, like death by suicide, death by overdose, and especially suicide and overdose were impacting younger younger people. Now, Kena doesn't, our analysis is just death numbers, disposition numbers. We don't get into cause of death. That's been so politicized, but we, we never got into cause of death even before it was politicized. But we have to kind of look at cause of death and demographics to look forward. And so the pull forward effect is when you have a million people die in a two-year period before their time by any estimation, maybe it was only a year, two, three years, you know, maybe it was 10, 20 years ahead of before they would be expected to die, that's going to have an impact on the funeral profession, right? So one of the things I've learned from very smart Cana members who, who educate me um, and allow me to, to share their analysis is, um, is really fascinating. So just looking at the million deaths attributed to COVID, in 2020, the first 400,000 of those were basically the oldest, sickest, people in nursing homes, pe- dialysis patients, lots of comorbidities. Maybe they only had three, four, five year you know, lifespan. Science would indicate that, right? Um, and then, but the 600,000 who died with the Omicron wave and afterwards were much more spread among generations. So if it were just the oldest, sickest people, like the whole million you know, we're just the oldest, sickest, oldest generation, you would expect a pull forward effect of maybe, you know, two, three, four, five years. So the next couple, couple, three, five years would be a little bit slower, lower death rates, um, which all that means for funeral professionals is, wow, you can finally take a breath and allow your staff to take that vacation and mm-hmm. you're still going to be busy. But the staffing crisis is still real and you, maybe you get a tiny bit of relief from that. But with that second wave, of younger people dying, this pull forward effect may go, may have an impact even like beyond the baby boomer generation, right? Because Gen Xers died Mm -hmm. and younger generations, uh, millennials are the biggest generation, but also um, I believe, I I can't set my source on this, but I believe very hard hit by overdose and suicide. And so if that trend continues, that will have this effect into the future. And the other thing we learned is that the deaths are not, the COVID deaths were not evenly distributed around the country. And Cana normally talks in national averages. Not at all. There were parts of the country that managed the pandemic dramatically different than other parts of the country. And so those deaths, those 600,000 Omicron deaths, were concentrated in certain regions of the country. And so, in yes, t- states like Texas and Florida have high populations. 
maybe an individual business won't feel that pull forward effect, but regionally it will 100% happen (laughs) over the next few years and that there were premature deaths. And yeah, and as we all recall, all too vividly, deaths without services in many cases, right? Without the ability to gather and and hold the services that they might have done in pre-pandemic times or will do now. So uh, stay tuned because um, as always, as time passes, we'll get more information about this. But, you know, everybody's predicting what the triple-demic or something, I heard that term today, that's particularly bad flu season, ongoing COVID as it gets colder in the country and people come inside, and then this uh, respiratory virus that's impacting younger people, children and young people so heavily. So we'll see how this, I'm hoping this is media hype, frankly, and that a bad flu season is bad enough. We don't need a, you know, triple-demic apocalypse. Um, but the the risk is still out there. Like there, there are still going to be, we'll, we'll, I'm curious to see, and we'll know in the spring, what the 2022 death rates and patterns look like. Mm-hmm. If, we've, if we've kind of normalized in any sense, or if we still have more than expected excess deaths. So, yeah. Does that answer your question, Tyler? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think it was very interesting to see what impact these extra deaths will have on the funeral profession and well, just the general population in, in general. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the other thing that I forgot to say this, the other thing that will offset some of these excess deaths for the past few years is that over the next 10 years, the, um, the you know, I don't want to say the baby boomer deaths will peak in about 10 years. And that's the the best guess anybody has. But that that used to be what I've read that was published was 2035 to 2040. But now it's more like 2031 to 2035. There's that pull for, I mean, that's just the media, right? Reporting. I'm sure it's based in, in CDC or other data, but you know, the pull, that's what the pull forward effect kind of high level means. Yeah. It makes sense. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm really interested to see what other data comes out in the next, you know, after the new year. Uh, so we, we could really look at 2021 and 22 all together as like a trio mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then just kind of uh, like analyze that. I'm really intrigued. Yeah. We're treating, Kane is treating 2020 and 2021 as outlier years and meaning that we don't factor them into our projections. But I'll tell you now, we won't do that forever because if 2022 remains high or that we have to adjust our algorithms for projections based on every time we get new information. And so you're absolutely right. I'm equally um, excited to add another year of data to our analysis because I think we're going to be, I think we're conservative right now and I stand by it, but we're going to be tweaking in future years. At least in the data that we've seen uh, through arrangements, all the effects that COVID had on arrangements and and everyone doing things online. In 20 to 2021, we saw a huge jump. But then from 2021, it, it, it went on its normal course. So if something was growing linear, it's still growing linear, but instead of it's, you know growing linear from 20 to 21, it jumped significantly. And then now it's back to linear. So it's like not slowing down, but it did a step pull function. forward. Yeah, a step pull function. Forward, uh, yeah. Yeah. Pull forward five years, and, and now we're back like it was five years in the future. And that's kind of what we saw. So I would imagine things are going to be like that. Yeah. 
with with death rates and everything. Yeah, like kind of this like stair step and not necessarily back down. But yeah, we'll see. I too hope that the last two years have been outliers. Yeah. Well, Barbara, we'll book you. Uh, should we just put you on the calendar right now for <laughs> the future then to talk for about May it 2023? I'm in. <laughs> yes. All right. yeah. May, June 20, <laughs> whenever you can fit me in. Yeah, no. I love the analysis you're doing. I too am data driven and making um, decisions in that way. So I really truly appreciate it. I'll keep listening until then. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come on whenever you like, whenever there's a spot. Thanks. All right, Barbara. Well, why don't you uh, let everyone know how to find you, how to contact you, sign up for the new course? Yeah. So the uh, the best way to learn more about this is our website, which is, we, we actually have two ways to go there, www.cremationassociation.org and also www.gocana.org, which I love to say that way. And I don't like to type cremation association, so I was typing gocana.org. Um, and then right from our, our homepage, you can link to the certified cremation specialist or also type in slash CCS and learn more. See testimonials from people who've gone through the program, um, hear from managers and owners who've who shared their experience that they're um, we, have, we have several Kena members who sent their entire staff to be certified at this point, and they've they've documented increased sales and increased uh, retention and, you know, different things like that. And then also from the employee perspective, their positive experience going through the training. It's all online. You do it self-paced. Um, for the most part, there's a couple of synchronous Zoom meetings. So it's we really try to make it as accessible as possible to everybody, regardless of time zone, position, that kind of thing. I'm rarely on social media, but you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, I have a unique name. So just search Barbara Chemist, K-E-M-M-I-S, and you will find me. And my email is barbara at cremationassociation.org. And that's the best way to reach me. I love to hear from people and, and get feedback and learn from uh, you and your examples. And depending on when this this interview uh drops, I will be obsessed with the funeral rule. So if you have opinions about the funeral rule, share them with me too, because we'll work them into the cane of comments. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, we can, uh, I think the, uh, F, the funeral rule one is like a three-part series, I think, <laughs> for us. Uh, there's, there's a lot going on there. I'm not sure I'm the person to talk to about that. I would definitely talk to uh, others. Uh, we can talk offline. About <laughs> there, there's so many different perspectives, and this is this is an important one to cover. So, yeah, yeah. great. So All right. Well, thank you, you Barbara. If uh, any of our listeners want to uh, learn more about Barbara personally, you can listen to our old episode. It was episode seven where we had Barbara on. Asked her a little bit more about the background of her and getting to where we're at, but um, it was a pleasure having you again, Barbara. Thank you very As much. As always. Thanks. Oh, and uh, another shameless plug, Tyler and Will are presenting at the Cana Cremation Symposium first week of February in fabulous Las Vegas. So you love this podcast, you want to see them in person, come to the Cana events and meet them. Those signing, you're signing autographs, right? And yes, different things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, that was not part of your uh, speaker agreement, but you are going to lead a fireside chat and have a very interactive session and we're psyched to host you so thank you thank you yeah we're gonna definitely drop some knowledge will's gonna share we're gonna shake it up a bit 
All the ins and outs of how he was able to do so many cremations a year. Perfect. That's what my our people want to hear. Sweet. Awesome. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you ever want to know more, please find us at directcremation.com. 